Welcome to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is writer podcaster Deborah Gibson. Deborah is the creator of the award winning podcast Dear Michelle, a memoir framed as a series of heartfelt letters to former First Lady Michelle Obama. In her podcast, Deborah discusses her rise out of poverty and abuse to the hallowed halls of academia and beyond. A true force of nature, Deborah also holds degrees in government, economics, urban planning, screenwriting, and law. She served in the military and has the distinction of being, unofficially, the first black woman to testify before Congress on behalf of all service members. She has a screenplay currently being workshopped and is at work on her second stage play, having written, directed, and produced her first play while mobilized to Iraq. So, Deborah, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Thank you for having me. You know, you and I have had really different lives, but as I was listening to your podcast, I noticed one thing we have in common is we both work food service at Oberlin. (laughs) (laughs) So when you told the story in your podcast about how you got revenge on the woman who was mistreating you when you were a line server... I was like, oh, yeah, I used to do really goofy things when I was a line server, too. Like, I had sort of a thing going with my partner where I would be like, if I put this parsley on someone's plate, you have to ask him or her out. <laughs> and he would do, I would, like, put the parsley and be like, oh, want to go see a movie? <laughs> so. I love that story. And what's funny about it is she and I are friends on Facebook to this day. Like, we resolved our issues. I think it was just sort of a hazing thing. <laughs> but my crazy goes kind of high sometimes. <laughs> so I did get your permission to name the college we went to, but you called yourself anonymous in the podcast. Why did you choose to do that? So I tried to be anonymous. And then I was so disappointed because one of the websites actually included my entire government name. And I was like, no, I'm supposed <laughs> to be anonymous. It failed (laughs) miserably, but I still, I give people nicknames. And so unless you self-reveal, no one actually knows who it is I'm talking about. (laughs) So so it kind of protects me legally also. So you were planning to stay anonymous. I absolutely wanted to remain anonymous and then couldn't, because what I didn't realize is that I didn't realize that the podcast would become so popular. And I also, I thought, Honestly, if 10 people listen to this, it'll be, you know, I'll be fine with that. I had no idea that it would gain the attention that it got. You know, I thought I have an interesting life story, but I didn't think anybody would really pay attention to it. It sort of surprised me that people have not only paid attention to it, but are, you know, eagerly anticipate episodes and want me to pick it back up and, you know, or calling me and emailing me and inboxing me like when's the next episode gonna come out and I'm like wow I had no idea (laughs) Mm, yeah I remember at one point it was listed somewhere as number 15 in dramatic podcasts so you must have many thousands of listeners at this point right so you know what it's the answer to that unfortunately is I don't know Mm. and I say that for several reasons one is because it's really difficult to figure out how the podcasting community tracks podcasts, like there's an algorithm. So it'll say you had, you know, two or 300 listeners on this day. And the next day you had 200, you know, whatever information they give, I'm excited to have. I have no clue what that means in terms of numbers or how many people listen. What I know is that I'm proud of the work. I think it reflects the best of what I could possibly produce. And you see what happens. Well, I love it. You had 35 episodes. I more or less binged them because the <laughs> episode ended and I'm desperate to know what happens next. <laughs> and while I was listening, I was literally laughing out loud. And I also literally cried a number of times. And that does not happen to me a lot when I'm listening to podcasts. So I think it's like your writing is gorgeous and your storytelling, but also your performance, which is really lively and fun and you embody different voices and yeah. (laughs) So yay, everybody hearing this should listen to Dear Michelle. (laughs) Um, Thank you. (laughs) So how did you come up with the idea of framing your personal story as a series of letters to Michelle Obama? 
That's a great question. So it actually started because I got rejected by publishing companies. So in the early 2000s, I had been rejected by a million different publishing companies. But they would all send me personal handwritten notes, which I hear is really rare in that industry. And the notes would say, you have a great story, but you need an editor. And I was just so frustrated. And the work was not what it is now. So I molded over and I tried to reach out to a couple of editors and it went nowhere. So one of my friends had a conversation with me and in the conversation, he said, if you can write, you can edit. Stop using that as an excuse not to tell your story and figure out how to edit your own work. So President Obama gets elected and I decided that Michelle Obama was everything that I could have been had I not made bad choices. I'm proud of my journey, but I made a lot of mistakes. And I thought to myself, she represents everything you can be if everything goes well. And I represent everything that could potentially go wrong if you make the missteps that I've made. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to sort of play off that tension and talk about, you know, some of the steps that I think women, but in particular women of color should take if they want to have full and fruitful lives. Now, there's a lot that goes into that, of course, because every life is different. But I think if you are pursuing academia, if you are interested in founding a career, there are some things that you should not do that Michelle Obama didn't. And I did all of those things. (laughs) And I wanted to talk about what happens when you fail. Well, but you don't you don't ever end with a failure, right? Because you keep going and, you know, may bad choices lead to better choices. Yes. And, and so, you know, so here's what I say about my life. I was never a settled person. Right. I think that's something that happens. So whoever you are inside sort of radiates outside and it helps to form what your life looks like. So if you want to know who you are, look at your life and you can kind of tell. And so I think that I was never a settled person and that was just reflected in my overall life. And I think I'm the kind of person that never gives up. So you can bully and push and I'll just keep coming back. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. (laughs) I just don't give up. Mm. I remember in one of the earlier episodes, you talked about how when things were really difficult at home, you found refuge in books And you said the ones I read and the ones I write. And that made me curious. How old were you when you started writing? And what kind of writing were you doing as a young person? The first story I ever remember writing was called Sheila Foster and the Creep. And I wrote it in the third grade and I won an award for writing it. It was a story about a young girl who had a brother that annoyed her, but she really, really loved the brother. And um, so it was loosely based off of my imagined relationship with my brother. So we we got along and we had a great relationship. (laughs) But I imagined what would happen if he were a more rambunctious kind of kid. And that's what formed the basis for that story. But that started me. And, you know, my mother taught me to read when I was two. And I grew up in a household where my mom told me bedtime stories until I was 12 or 13. Mm. which helped me to form ideas about how stories should be formulated and how to move a story and what characters look like and what they have the capacity to do. And I think that helps to frame my style as a writer to the extent that I have one. Mm, Yeah. What has your process been like as you've been working on this memoir? Is it something that you wrote pieces a long time ago and pieces more recently, or did you have a complete version and you're rewriting it or what's? So I wrote a completed autobiography. Um, It has been lost, (laughs) but I wrote a a completed autobiography. And then as I write the podcast episodes, I go back in my personal memory and I think about those stories, but I think of them now with an eye towards telling them in the podcast, which changes the type of story that I'm telling. So if it were a book, you wouldn't get like the liveliness that pops out because um, I guess I could describe some of the more colorful people that I've met in my life in a book, but I think you really hear it 
you hear the emotion and you get a full sense of who these people are when it's dictated over the podcast. Yeah. One of the things I love is the nicknames. <laughs> Everybody's got a nickname. And some of them are really funny, like the best friends in college being glass and wine <laughs> and the high school boyfriend who's junior Satan. And, you know, and I was curious in life, do you nickname people in your mind? Something that, yeah, absolutely. So people get nicknames. I tend to nickname people just in general, but I specifically do it if someone is antagonistic to me, right? So if they antagonize me in any way, shape, or form, they're getting a nickname. And sometimes the nicknames are kind of funny. And sometimes they're a reminder to me not to let that person get too close to me. Like one of my favorites was a woman that I encountered and my nickname for her was that troll. And that was literally her nickname. Yeah. (laughs) I found myself laughing a lot. And places had nicknames too, right? Like Hell School. Hell School was this fancy, you know, boarding school. And yes. So every place gets um, a nickname um, in part to try to protect those institutions. It's really difficult because I have a platform now to be able to tell my story. And I don't know who listens, right? Maybe it's the president of that school. Well, that school doesn't deserve to be, so it's not my intent to hurt anyone with the podcast, right? So that's not the goal at all. The goal is really just to tell my story, but I preface it by saying, this is just my version. So you're only hearing these stories through my lens. And there's always a different perspective, right? So Hell School's perspective was, I just wasn't a good fit for that school. And that's completely reasonable. But so too is my critique of that school. I don't know that I think that the school needs to be named publicly, because to the extent that there were some mistakes on behalf of the school, that doesn't need to be exploded into something really big. It could have just been something that happened with me. And so I try not to um, institutionalize issues I may have encountered that may be very individualized. I think that's a fair representation of my goal. I think that shows a generosity of spirit on your part, because some of the things that happened at Hell School as a listener, they seemed really discriminatory, really unfair. And of course, there's the teacher that you call trash mouth that says just (laughs) horrible, horrible things, you know. So I think in this time of cancel culture, it shows a big heartedness on your part that you're not naming them. Yes, but I do so because I think that everyone is entitled to move beyond the mistakes that they make in their life. I certainly have been able to do that, right? And I don't even spare myself in the podcast, right? So when I make mistakes, I talk about them and I'm not very kind about the way that I, you know, process those mistakes. And so I try to do that in a way that I think helps to show grace, not just to institutions and people but also to myself, because I think, again, we're all entitled to that grace. Mm, Yeah, I love that. Well, I wanted to invite you to read a small excerpt, speaking of beauty and grace. (laughs) Episode seven, Broken and Crazy. (laughs) There's a guy you call Preacher Creature who's been shouting on the bus, and he finally gets off. And that leads you into a bit of reflection about your neighborhood and your family. Would you read that section for us, please? Sure. And just like that, preacher creature exits and shanks disappear and children are soothed and my mama stops mumbo cursing and the bus driver returns to his seat and the 30-foot bus carrying remnants of lives never fully realized and all the broken things pulls up to the next stop. And I know I probably shouldn't be, but I'm totally in love with all the broken things in their particular and peculiar brand of crazy. They are obnoxious and loud and inappropriate and colorful and funny and sad and confused, wrapped in magnificent hues of gold and brown and black. And they are always going places and doing things that lead them nowhere except back to the place they just left. We exit the bus and cross the street. My grandmother lives on the second floor of a three-story walk-up. I close my eyes and inhale. I hear the voices of my aunts and uncles 
as they talk over each other and laugh. They too are hues of golds and browns in the deepest and darkest shades of black. I exhale and ascend the stairs. The moment my grandmother opens her front door, I know that I am loved or something that closely resembles it. And I may not always be happy, but I take my happiness like I do love whenever and wherever I can get it. And for a moment, brief and fleeting, I am loved here. I am happy here, here amongst all the things beautiful, broken and crazy. That's beautiful. And I remember you said that that was one of your favorite episodes. What do you love about that episode? I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood, and I love the fact that I had the opportunity to be surrounded with people that were, just like I described in that excerpt, they were broken, some of them, but they were also beautiful and magnificent and alive in ways that almost didn't make sense. And I connected with that. So where my mother saw this gentleman who was a street preacher who would get on the bus and perform and preach and (laughs) was completely out of control. That's the one you named Preacher Creature. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's Preacher Creature. So where my mother would see Preacher Creature and think, oh, and just be completely abhorred by his behavior. I thought, wow, I get to experience this and how wonderful this is that I get to be surrounded by these people and participate in this experiment. And, And I just thought, this is like having a window to like the greatest story ever told. So for me, it was enriching and and lively and a profound. I don't know that a lot of people come from those experiences and look at it that way, but I certainly did. I was just like honored that I got to, <laughs> to experience preacher creature. And there was another guy that rode the same bus that I nicknamed mumps head because he had some kind of condition that grew like these bumps on the back of his head. And I just, I love these people. My mother, (laughs) she would mumble curse or curse curse. And (laughs) that was hysterical. I love when you say mumble curse and stomp walk and things like that. Like it's almost Shakespearean in a way, because Shakespeare did not like put together words and made new words. And I knew exactly what you meant, you know? <laughs> well, you were sort of seeing your world as an artist, I think, even from an early age. Absolutely. And I also saw it as um, this grand mosaic. So the script that I'm hoping that's being workshopped is about a quilt. And that quote becomes representative of some of the themes in the story. But it's, in my head, it's representative of the fact that we are all individual squares that sort of link together to form this grand quilt that sort of blankets the world. And I think that, you know, the fact that one or two of us are frayed or disconnected doesn't mean that we shouldn't provide comfort to them or support to them. And I also think that it means that we have this profound ability to be able to care for one another. Now, whether or not we choose to is a different story, but I think we should. That's my personal political bent on the whole thing. But that theme of this interconnectedness of people I got from growing up in my neighborhood. And um, I'm proud that I got to, to grow up there. I recognize that no matter how flawed I am, that there's always a place for me in the world because I grew up in that neighborhood. There's a strength about the people who grew up there and there's a strength inherent in me personally that I don't think would be there if I had not grown up in that environment. Like I I have such a profound love for that neighborhood and that community and communities like it all over the country and all over the world, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The screenplay also touches on your time in the military. Is that right? So the screenplay is actually set in Korea. It's a story about a young African-American kid who finds himself in the middle of the Korean War through a series of misfortunes and misevents that land him there. And so, you know, before he goes to the war, he sort of idealizes what war is. And then he gets there and... 
there was a quote that I wanted to include in the script that I had to unfortunately take out because it just didn't suit the story. But there was a quote that one of the characters said, and that quote was, boys idolize war that women will weep for. Mm. Um, And I think that that sort of sums up exactly what war is. And I think that that is relevant, no matter what the war, it's relevant because for some reason, human beings have never figured out how to get along. So we're always either on the brink of war or actually fully involved in war. I think that says something about us as a world. But I also think that if you study war, and I have, I've studied it from sort of a global perspective, but also sort of study war from a personal perspective, because I I analyze arguments, right? (laughs) So I look at the distance that arguments create. I look at why arguments happen or why disagreements happen. And my goal is to always try to reach the middle. But I'm a firm believer that there are times when war is necessary. There are just times in your life where you have to fight. What that fight looks like can change. And it doesn't have to always involve physical weapons. But I think you need to be able to choose weapons that are suitable to the fight that you're in. So I don't want to give away too much of the story, but one of my favorite scenes in the script is there is a Black woman in the story who has to face down some people who are hostile to her existence, actually. And her goal is to protect the people that she loves. But she does so with a defective weapon. And so I was asked by a friend why I didn't just give her a weapon that worked. And I said, well, you know, that sort of thing comes up later in the story. But it also works as a device because I think that there have been times in my life as a Black woman where I have felt as if I had to face down a crowd of people who were anti to my position as a human being. And I had to do so with weapons that were defective, right? And and so that scene for me personally resonates and has to, you know, I hope if if this screenplay gets picked up, that the director and the producer agree to let that scene in particular remain in the story because its implications go far beyond just what was expressed by the sort of casualness with which that scene sort of plays out in the actual story. Wow, that sounds really important on a symbolic level. Yes. Um, another moment that I thought was important in your story was when you were cast in the play A Raisin in the Sun, and that ended up opening into all these other things. And I feel like is perhaps connected to the fact that you're still writing plays, writing screenplays. Can you talk about the impact that that moment had on your life? Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I had just gone through something pretty traumatic in my household. And it created a lot of distance between my mother and myself. And so I was seeking a way to get out of the house as much as possible. And one of my friends said, hey, there's a play and I think you should audition. And I thought, me? Like I was shy and goofy and just awkward. And I think I still am. <laughs> but So I, I go to, to go to the audition And I can't pronounce the word D-O-L-L. So I had a relative whose nickname was Baby Dow. And so I say dial like soap. And so I thought there's no way they're going to cast me because I can't even say one of the premiere lines in the actual script. (laughs) But I get cast. And then those relationships, some of those relationships are still first and foremost in my life. So one of my relatives ends up married to one of my classmates' sisters. Another classmate is still a dear, dear friend to me and has helped me in ways big and small in my life. And I am forever grateful that I met him. And then another classmate ends up introducing me to her family. And they become, for me, they become my own personal version of the Huxtables. And then that family sends me to Russia when I'm 17 years old. They literally paid for me to go to Russia. I had never been on a plane before. So my first plane ride was to Russia and it was, you know, 18, 20 hours long. And so for a kid who's growing up in this inner city neighborhood to get to experience people from 
all over the world was profound. It opened up literally an entire world for me that I didn't know existed. So, you know, when you grow up, wherever it is you grow up, if you don't travel, you tend to think that whatever issues you face or whatever you see defines everything because your world is very insular, right? It's only when you get out into the world and you begin to see that, hey, there are other people and they live differently and they talk different and they experience things much different than I do, that you begin to see that the world is really much bigger than you could ever possibly have imagined. And at the same time, again, we're all sort of connected in some way. When I came home, it changed my perspective about everything from race relations to economics to politics to just everything. It just gave me a completely different perspective about those things. And that never would have happened had I not taken the single step to join that play. And so to that point, I'd like to say that I think the magic in our lives happens not when we choose to stay stationary, but when we have the courage to move. Because that movement, that getting yourself out of your comfort zone opens up an entire world of possibility. I always say it shakes the universe. It wakes up the universe and makes the universe say, hey, this person is moving in a way that And maybe we didn't anticipate or maybe we didn't see before. And I think on the other side of that, there's always a pause. But I think once you get through that pause, on the other side of it, miracles happen. You just have to wait for them to unfold. But I've always seen in my life where, I don't want to be hypocritical when I say this, but I try not to worry about negative things happening in life, no matter what they are. And I think my podcast is literally that statement because there's a lot of bad that happens throughout my podcast, but it, it never lasts long. And in my life, it's always connected to something way bigger that I can't see when I'm actually going through the experience. So what I've learned is that the things that I think are the worst things that ever could have possibly have happened to me are really the introduction or the initiation to the next miracle. I just don't always happen to see it. Mm. Well, speaking of those difficult experiences, in episode 24, Shrek versus Satan, (laughs) you talk about loving ourselves in three stages. Can you describe what those are and how that progression played out in your life? Yes. So I think we love ourselves first through the lens of how our parents see us. So if our parents think that we are worthy of love, then we we wear that. And I think we wear it almost as clothing. It helps to form, I think, the aura that we have as human beings. And then we walk out in the world and other people pick up on that. It's a lot easier to move through the world when you have been loved first and foremost by your parents. When you haven't, it's not that you can't move through the world with ease. It's just that it's more difficult because you have to constantly remind yourself that you are worthy of being loved in the world and that you have a place in the world and that you matter. I think the second phase is when you attempt to learn to love yourself. And that middle place can be really difficult. I think you see a lot of teenagers and a lot of young adults who who deal with that. It was definitely a struggle for me. And I think I failed completely at it. It's interesting because I didn't feel like I had been loved by my parents. And my feeling as if I wasn't loved caused me to not love myself. It's not an excuse. I just didn't know what love was. What I thought love was, I tried to go out in the world to find, because I think it's true that the universe abhors a void. And so there was this hole in me that I kept trying to fill, kept trying to fill, kept trying to fill. And I (laughs) took me a long time to figure out that what I was trying to fill the hole with would never come from things external to me, but they had to come from internal to me, right? So the whole gets filled from the inside out, not from the outside in. And then I think in that final stage of love, you realize that you've been loved all along, but you didn't recognize what love was. So we always expect for love to be positive and affirming. Sometimes love is saying no to someone. Sometimes love means setting appropriate boundaries for people. Sometimes love looks like the absence of 
the very thing that you're seeking. So for example, in my case, my dad left when I was young and he would come back intermittently. But whenever he did, there was always damage on the other side because my expectation as a child was that he would stay. And I thought if my dad stays, then everything in my world is going to work out and things are going to be better. And that wasn't true. (laughs) It wasn't true. He never stayed. But there was always this longing that, you know, he would show up and and be there for me. And it was really profound for me when I, there was this long extended time when I, I hadn't seen my dad. I think it was something like 10 years had gone by and I hadn't seen him. And then one day I decided that I was going to go on, I call it my forgiveness tour. (laughs) So I decided to forgive everybody who'd ever hurt, harmed, or injured me. And I wanted to do it in person. So I went and found all of these people. I made sure that my parents were last. And when I got to my dad, I found him. It took some time, but I found him. When I got to him, he said something to me that really stuck with me. He said to me, how do you know that you would have turned out to be this great and wonderful person today if I had been in your life? How do you know that my leaving wasn't the best thing that ever could have happened to you? I hate that you spent all of those years yearning for something that wasn't your reality. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I think what made it even more profound was that he reached in his pocket and he pulled out all of these newspaper clippings from when I was a kid and I'd been in the news. Or, and I thought, oh my God, he literally followed me and knew like I belonged to him in some way. But I didn't, I couldn't see that. So love takes on a lot of different forms. I think we have to be willing to see love in all of its various iterations. And I also think that there's one final step. I talk about this in an earlier episode. And that is, I think relationships, I have a theory about relationships and I share it all the time. Um, And my theory about relationships is this, that a relationship is nothing more than your soul having a question that the other person's soul can answer and vice versa. And as long as your question matches that person's answer, you can remain in relationship. The second that the question or the answer is out of alignment, something goes awry with the way that the two people can connect. And that then forms the basis, I think, of every broken relationship. Your questions no longer align with your answers. So whenever there's a disagreement between myself and another person, I try to figure out what question is it that I'm asking of this person that they can't answer. So for example, in my relationship with my mom, which is the example that I always use, I never felt like my mother loved me. I'm sure that she did in her own way, but it never resonated with me. And that's completely okay because my life turned out great anyway. But one day I thought to myself, what happens if I ask a different question? Because no matter how many ways I ask whether or not she will love me unconditionally, my answer is always no. And I thought, well, what would the question be? And it came to me, what happens if the question that I ask of my mother is what gifts did you give me? And the second that I reframed our relationship from that perspective, it completely changed how I felt about her because I realized that she'd given me innumerable gifts that I use all the time. She taught me to read. She taught me to stand up for myself. I watched her literally face down enemies that she should have cowered from. And she did it with grace and with dignity and with this big booming voice. And I thought, wow, like all of these things that I sort of carry again, like a cloak, I got from my mom and I didn't realize it at the time. So. Yeah, that seems like a really transformational question for any relationship. What gifts do you have? Because it seems like every encounter, if you approach it from that perspective, you're going to find something. Right. And I think the key to communication and relationships is to be able to figure out what questions you're constantly asking each other on a subconscious level, because I don't always think it's conscious. What questions are you always trying to answer on an unconscious level and whether or not you can live with the other person's answers? Yeah. And whether you're asking from them things that you really need to give yourself. 
Absolutely. So I have finally gotten to a place in my life. It took me 50 plus years, but I finally figured it out. I finally know how to give myself love. And the second that I learned how to do that, I don't require that from other people. And it's funny because the less I require it, the more it comes flooding back to me, which is this amazing thing that I didn't even know existed before. Right. So I love myself and I I try to try to give that love to other people. I'm not perfect in any way, shape or form, but I do try. And I think that the more I know myself and I know what's good about me and what's bad about me, you know, that's subjective. But the more in tune I am with myself, the more I can love other people. Mm, Yeah, so true. I wanted to bring forward another episode from the podcast. I thought there was an incredibly important moment. It's episode 30, which you called Brain Dead Dance. And in your college experience at um, a school you're calling Oasis, which is the school we both went to, um, (laughs) there's a young international studies professor who notices that you have incredible gifts in that area and offers to mentor you. But you turn her down and even break down in tears saying, no, you know, I can't do this. Mentor someone else instead. And I'd love to hear you talk about why you think that happened and what journey you had to go on from that time in your life to come to a place where you were really willing and able to let your gifts shine through. Um, so thank you for that question. <laughs> Um, when I was at Hell School, I had a teacher tell me that I was nothing but a dumb, ignorant Black girl, that I was never going to do or be anything except birth a bunch of babies and live in a trailer park and have the government pay all my bills. And I was devastated and I completely shut down. It was a seminal moment for me where I just felt as if I didn't belong in the world. And I thought I have to hide who I am because in certain environments, people won't recognize any talents and gifts that I have. So I'm just not, I'm going to choose not to show them. And so I'm in an international studies class years later in college. And I intentionally don't come to class because I have a semi-photographic memory and I recall things readily. It's starting to fade now, but back then it was lightning sharp, that skill. And so I'm in this class and I don't even go to class all that often. And so one day my international studies professor asked a question and she asked me to answer it. All of these other students are like ready and willing. And she says, no, I want her to answer it. And I said, no, I would prefer not to answer. And she says, no, you're going to answer or I'm going to fail you. So the class quiets. And I answer her question. And it is the answer was pretty profound. And when I'm done, she says, I want to see you after class. And I meet with her. And she offers to mentor me. She tells me that she sees me hide my intelligence. And she's like, I don't want you to ever do that again. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to the world. You have such incredible gifts, but you hide them. And I don't understand why. So I tell her the story about the gentleman from years earlier. And she admonishes me not to let him control my destiny. But I'm not prepared to hear her at that moment. I think she was the right person. I just wasn't prepared to hear her. And I think that happens because sometimes we're so connected to our pain that letting go of it would create a space that we don't know whether or not we will ever be able to feel. And for me, as a young person, I didn't know how to live a life that was without pain. I'd always had it. It had always been there. And that pain in particular, because, you know, I sort of define myself in my community as this person who was smart. So to go out in the world and have someone challenge that was really, it hurt. It was deeply painful and it wounded me. Interestingly, years later, I'm in Iraq and I'm in the middle of of a war and it's my job to teach soldiers. And so there were supposed to be 15 to 20 people assigned to my class. It tended to be way more than that because my classes were pretty popular. I would start every class with a story from my life 
And at the end of that story, because, you know, we're in a war, you know, I want to tell people things to sort of perk them up and let them know that this is a safe place for them to be in and to learn. And one day I get ready to tell the story about the gentleman from years ago, and I cannot stop laughing. And my students are like, like they're, I literally have tears in my eyes and I'm doubled over from laughter. Finally, I collect myself and I say to my class, I told the story. And then I tell my class, I say, I just learned, you can't listen to other people define who you are. And here's why. Look at my life. We live in a trailer park. The government pays all my bills. I do have two kids out of wedlock. <laughs> and I said, he wasn't wrong. He was just about 30 years early. <laughs> and so I never, you know, had I been able to, to take what he said when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, and reimagine it as something positive, that would have had a completely different impact on me. But I took it in the way that he meant it. And it sat with me for years and years and years. Interestingly, after that episode aired, he tried to reach out to me on Facebook. And I refused to, I have forgiven him, but there are some people who just don't deserve access to your life. <laughs> like, there's nothing for us to talk about. Like, whatever his journey was or is, he can own that just like I've owned my journey. We don't need to talk about it at all. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I've I've had a tiny comparable experience with Facebook <laughs> in that I I grew up Jewish in Kansas, which was fairly unusual. There were very few instances in my life where I experienced any discrimination around it, but there was a kid who whispered dirty Jew in my ear in the hallway. Oh. And later he tried to friend me on Facebook. And I had the same thing. I'm like, you know what? No. Yeah, you're entitled to create safe spaces from people who have injured you or who want to injure you, right? And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Like, we get to create the lives that we want to live. And sometimes that doesn't always include letting people have access to us that don't deserve that access. Like, I think. I don't know if I think that this is a good characteristic all the time, but I have a tendency to like cut people out of my life that don't, I, I try not, I used to be really like mean about it. And now it's just a, I'm sorry, you don't, I'm not willing to create the space for you to be here anymore. I've heard from friends that they think that that's controlling. I see it very differently. I see it as my saying, this is my bubble. And these are the things that I need in my bubble in order to be able to go out into the world and do great things and try to make the world a better place. And I can't do that if I have certain people's negativity surrounding me. Yeah, I think it's pretty reasonable to draw certain boundaries. Exactly. You spoke earlier about effective versus ineffective weapons. I know that you are working on a project that has to do with bringing more women of color into the tech sphere, which I think is what we might think of as a really effective weapon on a larger scale. Do you want to say anything about that? Yes. Yeah, so it's, I'm holding the exactly what it is sort of close to my chest, but I am working on a tech project. I'm actually planning to start a tech company and I am blessed and fortunate to be surrounded with people in the tech industry who not only believe in me, but who also believe in my product. And there's like a community of us that just sort of, you know, share ideas and we bounce ideas off of one another and we support each other and shore each other up. You know, what that looks like sort of changes configurations all the time. But at the core of it, what we're saying is that there needs to be more African-American women and women of color in the tech world because the numbers are just abysmal. And I worry that if that doesn't happen, that isms will replicate not only in the tech world, but also within the technology, right? So you hear all the time these arguments about how bias seeps into technologies. That's very real. You can look at medical technologies, for example, right? And the ways in which certain medical technologies don't always take into account darker skin or like it's not a medical technology, but I had a really fascinating conversation with a woman in Chicago 
in a bathroom because I went to the stall, stepped out and went to go wash my hands and the water wouldn't come on. So I stood there and I had to wait. And I asked the woman next to me who happened to be Caucasian. I said, hey, can you run your hands up underneath the water for me? And the woman is like, why? And I said, well, because it doesn't read my skin color. And she's like, what? And so I run my hand again and it doesn't register. She does it and it picks up her skin tone and the water runs. So there's this other woman who's like, yeah, that happens to me too. She said, because my hands have freckles. And so she's like, so it doesn't recognize the freckles. So we don't always think of the little ways in which our world could be more inclusive, but isn't. You know, people of color are always having to adjust themselves to a world that doesn't always accommodate us. And what I say is that when women and women of color enter the tech world, we have not only the opportunity, but I would almost suggest the obligation to make tech more inclusive. So my tech in particular starts with a completely different model than most tech. So most broad tech platforms, they start with what has traditionally been known as majority populations in the, in the hopes that the tech will filter down. My tech starts with people of color and hopes that the tech will filter up. And just that different perspective helps me to think differently about tech solutions and tech ideas. And it's been challenging, right? So I have to now convince venture capitalists why my model is completely different from other capital models and why I think it can work. But I think, you know, there's tension there, right? Because they're interested in making the most money that they possibly can. And maybe this model gets us there, but it gets us there much more slowly than it would if we started from a different perspective. But for me, letting that population have access to tech is paramount to me as a person and to everything that I stand for and everything that I want to do in the world. And I think it's sort of my obligation to use this platform to benefit as many people who look like me as I possibly can. And it's not that the tech is like, you know, it's only for this population. That's not it at all. But what I am saying is that we can stand traditional models on its head and we can create an inverse triangular situation that allows the flow to go from the bottom up instead of from the top down. And I'm excited about it. And I'm interested in seeing where it goes and how it launches. And, you know, even if I end up failing, the lessons that I learned from all of this will be profound. And I don't think that it will fail. I've, I've gotten some really, really positive feedback. So I'm excited about it. Oh, that's great. Well, I wish you so much luck with it and look forward to seeing what grows from that. <laughs> well, I've got one more super important question, which is when can we expect the next episodes of Dear Michelle, for those of us who have now binged the first 35 episodes two or three times. <laughs> I thank you for binging. <laughs> so I've stopped and started the podcast a couple of different times. One of the times is because, you know, I'm so, because it is called Dear Michelle, there will be subjects that I want to broach in the podcast. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to ever and I do mean ever cast aspersions on Michelle Obama, right? I'm so proud of her first. And second, I have just this profound respect for everything that she's been able to accomplish and achieve. Like she is, for me anyway, she's the poster child for successful Black women in this country. And that's not to say that there aren't others, like Oprah is definitely up there and Ava DuVernay. I mean, there's a, a ton of Black women who meet that model. But there are some things that those women as a whole did that I didn't know to do that I want to use my life to sort of point out. And so there are times when I will shut down the podcast because I get nervous about, like, did I reveal too much or I don't want to hurt the Obamas. So I'm always torn in a podcast between my truth and how to protect the Obama's legacy, because the, the goal is not to sort of tarnish that legacy or to live off of it. It's just simply to say, Michelle Obama got it right. I didn't. 
choose her path, not mine. <laughs> it's it's that a cautionary tale, right? And so I, I will shut it down occasionally as I grapple with those issues and deal with it. And then I also shut it down, honestly, because I purchased a house and over the last three years, there have been repeated break-ins in my house. The thief did something to my computing system and like busted up the hardware. And I thought, you know, is should I even continue? And so the short version of your question is I'm hoping to get another episode out by the second week of March. And I'm excited about being able to do that. I'm excited about continuing the story because I think that there's some things that I experienced that I think a lot of people can relate to, even if the way that they relate to it is to say, oh my God, I'm so glad I never had this experience. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think in any really powerful work of art, there's moments that are so particular to you, but underneath that, there is something universal about overcoming obstacles and not losing that sense of hope. And so that's why a white Jewish girl from Kansas can listen to this and be like, yeah, along with you, even though we've had completely different lives. So I have to say, I was really surprised. There've been various times throughout the course of the podcast where people have reached out to me and said that they were interested in perhaps producing the podcast, helping me to grow the podcast. So, so far, those offers haven't been suitable for me, but I'm hoping that, you know, at some point in the future, that might change. We'll see. But one of the people actually reached out to me and said, what happens if you have to give up some of your storytelling in order to make this grow? And honestly, I was at a place in my life where I was like, geez, I don't even know how I would do that. I would be okay with removing the Obama name in order to tell my stories. But it's so important to me to own those stories because it's my life. And I get to tell those stories in a way that is positive and affirming because I want people to know, just like you said, that you can overcome anything. Everything is possible because I'm possible. And so I want other people to have that spirit and just to not give up because so many people hurt and don't see the beauty that can lie beyond what they think is the worst thing that has ever happened to them. I've overcome a lot in my life. This is why I do the podcast, because this is my evolution and my ability to become in my own right. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for talking with me today. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Join us next time when I'll be talking to the amazing musician, author, radio host, and arbiter of all things Broadway, Seth Rudetsky, who also happens to be an Oberlin grad. Until then, take good care and stay off leash.